Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. This is such an exciting week, O'Toole. I love this week. <laughs> this is a biggie. I know, I know. Before we get into, we're going to be doing two things. We're going to start with the night manager yeah. as uh, and review that. And then also we're going to review uh, Confirmation, the Anita Hill uh, HBO special. So before we get started on that, I wanted to give a shout out to both the Americans and Grey's Anatomy, who I think are having really excellent seasons. The Americans last week was stellar, really, really beautifully done. And, you know, for something that's in its third, what is it, third or fourth season? I can't even remember. Time flies when you're a spy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You're supposed to, this is where O'Toole always comes in with the answer. They are in season four. You know, it's really, really hard to carry it out that long, doing an excellent, excellent job, which leads me to, I, you know, I, I don't want to start off this podcast with you bursting into tears or something, which I don't think I've ever seen you do, actually. But, but The Good Wife, you have two episodes left. Oh. Or what are you going to do? Okay, are they? I wonder if they're doing a Big Bang ending. Do you know anything about it? Have you heard? If Robert and Michelle King do not have a Big Bang episode planned, it would be shocking because they are so good at crafting their story arcs. We'll definitely have to pay attention, and I for sure will lost, watch the last show as I did with Mad Men too. Okay, I want to go first because I'm doing the introduction to The Night Manager, which actually just premiered on AMC on Tuesday night. It's already aired in the UK on the BBC. So it's a BBC AMC joint production. And I find it interesting. It's already been on the film festival circuit. So they showed it at the Berlin Film Festival. They showed it recently at Tribeca. It's really like a six hour Bond film from the music, the opening sequences, the glamorous locations. It's got to be one of the most cinematic programs the BBC has ever done. Into our lives, everyone's attracted to you. We just need you and me. I've got a new asset. You got any idea how dangerous that is? Murder, theft, we're on every wanted list on God's earth. My main man, my star. I think you might be playing both sides. We need Richard Roper. I'm going to get you out of here. And you think you're safe? We're pulling you out. Without me, you don't have an operation. You step out of line. We'll make you howl for your mother. It's sophisticated. It's elegant. I think I think um, Hiddleston makes Bond look like an idiot. You know, I think, you know, Bond is a joke in many ways. He bungles his way to success sometimes, but you know, Hiddleston is my guy any day. I think he. I think he's the sexiest man I've seen on film since. Well. Um, maybe Harrison Ford in Witness. I'm not kidding. <laughs> now, by the way, interesting that you should bring up Bond because there are several James Bond illusions in the series, including the lead character ordering a vodka martini. Did you see that? Yes, I did. Okay. Yep. The CIA contact in London is codenamed Felix, which is a possible allusion to Felix leader, you know, Bond's regular CIA contact and partner. So there's a lot of, you know, Bond illusions, but I just think he's so much more sophisticated and forward thinking than old Bond. What do you think? Well, since the series aired, Tom Hiddleston is being mentioned as perhaps the seventh James Bond. He's certainly a contender, which makes him the third actor that we've reviewed in the running for James Bond, because, of course, much talk has been made of Idris Elba from Luther uh-huh. and our right. own Posey Graham Evans. She said she would like to see Aaron Jeffrey from McLeod's Daughters, who I think would also be a terrific Bond. My name's Pine. I'm the night manager. Yeah! 
I don't think he can do this role and then become Bond. I think it's almost a conflict of interest, if you will. And I have a feeling this series is going to do more than just six episodes, right? So there's definitely talk of perhaps a second season because this did so well. What I find so interesting is that it's based on the 1993 book by John Le Carey, who brought us the spy who came in from the cold, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the Constant Gardener. His novels have been adapted for the screen at least 15 times, dating back to the era of Richard Burton. And this was his very first post-Cold War novel. Huh. Well, you know, I mean, Bond was based on on books that were hugely successful. Was the book successful? I didn't really know about it. The book was a bestseller, and this is a contemporary interpretation of the novel. So they took out the Colombian drug lords, and they instead inserted arms dealers in the Middle East. They also, by the way, unusually, they actually filmed on site. It was in um, Morocco, Mallorca, England. And, you know, that amazing house, Roper's House in Spain, you know, I'm in for that house. Like, you want to split it with me? I would love to split it with you. If you could work out a timeshare, I would appreciate that. <laughs> I, think <Hollister>. we, <laughs> I think what we have to work out is a mortgage broker. <laughs> Perhaps, frankly. you know, a small detail. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what an amazing property they found. Whoever was location in, you know, every scene, you just want to know where is that and when can I get there? And that was another brilliant adaptation because in the book, he lives on a luxury yacht, which of course is a nightmare to film on a yacht. Yeah. Because, you know, it's such... nowhere near as interesting either, you know? Right. Um, but the most interesting change made to the book is the part given to Olivia Coleman, our female detective from Broadchurch. She plays the lead investigator. What do you want, Miss Bird? I want to make you an offer. Bring down Richard Roper. You'll be in so deep, you'll worry that you'll never get out of it. I got nothing to lose. In the book, it was a man who was the British intelligence chief. I know, I thought that was fabulously interesting. They changed it not only to a female character, but in real life, Olivia Coleman was pregnant. So they left her pregnant in The Night Manager, which I thought was a very... Actually, yeah, they had to write it in. It was not part... Yeah, exactly. The series is directed by Susanna Beer, who directed one of my favorite movies after the wedding. There's a little write-up on our website with my favorite foreign films. She went on to win the Oscar for In a Better World. So Mm. I love that this series was directed by a woman and Olivia Colman gets to play one of the main parts. And we can add this, by the way, we have to do a list at the end of the year of main characters in movies that were changed from male, that were written for a man and ended up being female, because here's another, this is the fourth one. And if they hadn't rewritten that role, that means that really the only female characters in the series would have been playing mistresses. Well, the whores, exactly. I mean, you know, (laughs) unbelievable. And keeping in mind that we're talking about writers who are men. So I think they're very smart to make make her a woman. But also, it's a very similar role to the role she played in Broadchurch. And while I liked her in Broadchurch, and I like her in this, mm-hmm. I think she should be a little more, she's a little frumpy. And maybe, I mean, I'm sorry that you're pregnant, and maybe that makes the frumpiness part. But I think she needs to be a little sleeker and a little more put together and a little less anxious. Uh, for the role to really be the person I think she's supposed to be. If I'm going to turn over my life and death, possibly, to her, then she's got to be a little better better organized, you know. I, I just, I, I feel like that's the only only flaw in the presentation of her is that she's just not as tightly woven. She's more broad churchy, and she should be a little sleeker. See, more like, who's the woman who, remember who died in James Bond? 
Judy Dench. Yeah, but what's she playing? Anne. You know, Judy Dench always gives you the sense that she's very, very much in charge. Until they killed her off. And then Well, then she was dead. Just, she couldn't be in charge. They, we talked about this in our Spectre podcast. I know, I know. That's when all of a sudden they made her very weak. And then they killed her off when she could have gone out in a blaze of glory. Yeah, she should never... Exactly. And I think... I think this role calls for it to be more Judy Dentious, if, if that's a word. So, so that's the only role that I'm not totally comfortable with, but every other part, amazing. You know, there's a very interesting article written by John Le Carey, who was very happy with this adaptation of his book. So I'm going to put a link on our site, screenthoughts.net. He loved Olivia Coleman's character. He thought it added a lot, um, especially because it's a psychological thriller, that she knew which buttons to press to recruit Tom Hiddleston. So it didn't right, have to be which a... means she should be better put together, in my opinion. Well, yep. I think she plays it to great effect that um, when she goes in to meet with the British intelligence guys, she uses the fact they're looking down on her to go rogue and have a completely Yeah, I mean, she shows up late to a major meeting. You know, it's all men and her, and she walks in late. There's so many little things that they don't need to do. Um, you know, it just makes her look disorganized. And you know what? If you're going to be in charge of my life and possible death, then you better be organized. I don't, yet, I, I don't think it's necessary. It's very interesting, though, that she's the one who's dedicated her life to bringing down this arms dealer. Exactly. Um, the quote that I really like from John Le Carey is that he says he also applauded not just Olivia Coleman, but Susanna Beer. And he said what he liked best of all about the movie is that Susanna Beer, the director, goes on chewing at the bone of the drama long after other directors would have given up. And I thought that was a really interesting comment from a guy who has had 15 novels adapted for the big screen. Well, you know, it's funny because it's a slow grow, you know, I mean... You know, it, it, that's part of the sophistication of it. But when, if you compare it to Homeland, where Homeland's in-your-face anxiety every single minute, or I think it comes closest to The Honorable Woman. Also a BBC production. I know. That's a slow grow, too. And I just found out when I was looking this up for our podcast, I was so looking forward to The Honorable Woman's second season. And guess what? They canceled it. And I don't think they told anybody. Um, but anyway, I think it come, I think it has a very similar, um, you know, journey, you know, as The Honorable Woman. And it's funny because there's a number of scenes in the show, just in the first two. I've only seen the first two episodes. But there's a number of scenes in the show where cars are driving a long way on a very isolated road. And it's and the same thing is true there at the beginning. The opening is just bond better. You know, when Goldfinger came out in the in the early 60s and um that the opening was just mind blowing, and I think the I think the opening graphics and everything the way they've put that together is just unbelievably strong. It's but very Bond esque, very oh my very god, Bond-esque. really well done. So they have these boats that are going a long distance, and I think that's also sort of the journey they're going to take you on. Like this is a long road; it's going to take us a while. I think the way they're setting this up is unusual. I think it's unique. I think it's first to market, and I think it's wonderful, really, really wonderful. You know, it goes to show the power of television where you can turn these books into longer miniseries. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think the history of this is so interesting. 20 years ago, Hugh Laurie, who in this plays the worst man in the world, he gave a very funny interview where he said, if that's what you're casting, you know, I'm your guy to go to. 
Um, he actually tried to option the book, but Sidney Pollock already had the rights, and the screenplay was going to be written by the same guy who wrote Chinatown. And guess who was going to, Dustin Hoffman was going to star in it? Are you kidding me? I mean, unbelievable. You know, and then Brad Pitt's production company in 2009 tried to adapt it, and they just couldn't get it into a two-hour movie. So it was actually John le Carre's own sons who started their own production company to adapt his novels. And thank you for doing that. Really well done. Okay, ready, O'Toole? Now, I do these for you, and you don't respond well, but I'm going to ask a question because I... I think you're being a little judgy, but okay. Okay, well, okay. The minute I ask, everyone's going to laugh because I'm Roper or Pine? Pine. Oh, I don't know. Okay, now I know you just said Roper's the worst man in the history of the world, but there's something very compelling about him also. Like, okay, just hear me out on this, okay? I'm not disagreeing with you. (laughs) Okay, the way he's 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 very in charge. I love a man in charge. When we go back to the bodyguard, right? I love a man in charge. He's very in charge, but also Hollister, at moments like this, I can never (laughs) tell if you're bringing us forward with the women's movement or setting us back. I know. I'm not saying I'm normal or that I'm right. I'm just I'm just putting it out there. I he's a family man. I love that about him. He's very nice to her, you know, uh, so far anyway. Okay, I there's something compelling about him. I you know, as bad as he is, I see, you know, like when when the when the um the men come in and the and the kidnapping, you know, we won't talk about it sort of starts. He you know, he stands up, he takes charge. I mean, uh, there's qualities that he has that I like. Can I just say that? You bring the money to us, we give you back the boy. You saved my boy. Welcome to the family. Inserting his little boy into the plot I thought was brilliant, and it reminded me of that scene in Homeland where you have this generation of innocence. Yeah. Um, so you're going to pick Pine. Wait, you have to finish my thing. You're, so Pine, you don't find Roper appealing as a man at all. You know, Hollister, you're so funny with your little game rules. You say one-word <laughs> answers, and I give you a one-word answer, and then you say my one-word yeah, answer didn't was say not why. sufficient. Why Pine over Roper? I'm going to put the night manager over the worst man in the world. I am. I'm going <laughs> to stick with that. War is spectator sport. Is the problem. Anyone can betray anyone. But what I find so brilliant is that the dynamic between Pine and Roper, I find this so interesting to watch. As opposed to a physical chase, a physical cat and mouse chase, which involves usually car chases, it's totally psychological. And I find this so interesting where Olivia Coleman sends Tom Hiddleston's character to infiltrate this arms dealer's inner circle that no one's ever been able to infiltrate. And she tells him to embrace his inner psychopath. And you think, okay, to infiltrate, you've got to commit wrongs to do what supposedly is the bigger right. And these lines of what's right and wrong get so blurry where the ends justify any means, but it makes it very interesting to watch. Well, so you know, they have more in common than they don't, really. Well, I, that's what I think. That's why I think they're fair to compare. And But here's the thing. You know, the mental... Um, the mentals, strength between the two men and you see it in the way they look at each other right out of the get-go and again we don't want to pot spoil here so we shouldn't be talking about what's happening certainly in the second episode anyway but um but i will say that uh, i think that's part of the sophistication of it you know anybody can look at people beating each other up it's not the same thing 
as mentally assessing and deciding where you're going to go next and what you're going to do next, et cetera. And um, I think that I, I think that that's part of the sophistication of we don't have to show you the brutal violence between these two guys right now because you know it's there, you know, and and I have to, and I will say that I I I for sure will pick him also. I'm going to pick him too, but I I find Roper appealing on some sick level that I must have somewhere deep inside. <laughs> and well, I think that's makes... one of the reasons people are, women are going to love this show for that reason. It's the same thing as Billions. You know, he's got some appealing features, too. They both have good and evil in them. Both of them do in Billions, and both of them do here. Mm-hmm. Okay, now here's the thing. Hiddleston, so I went to look up Hiddleston, because why don't I know this man exists? He for sure belongs with me. And, and you, had was, just, you had just mentioned the Hank Williams movie, I Saw the Light, where he played Hank Williams. Okay, well, okay, he was in Thor, never saw it. Avengers, never saw it. He was yep. in Midnight in Paris, but I don't, I don't think he had a very large role, because I don't remember he him. He was in the Wallander series, the detective series, Wallander, which I loved. Yeah. Um, so anyway, does this mean I need to go start watching the Avengers and Thor? Are, the, are these amazing actors and men in these movies that I've totally walked away from? Maybe you should start with him as Hank Williams, and okay. I saw the light. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Did you see where to prepare for the role he actually spent the night managing an upscale hotel in London? I did, and frankly, <laughs> you know, that's again like, who is the woman who spent a, a month in her apartment? Oh, yes, the to star pre- of Rome. It was Brie. She spent a month in her home, and I pointed out that it's probably 6,000 square feet and not quite the same thing. Well, it's the same thing. You know, staying, you know, uh, working with the management of a hotel in London's not the same. But I thought it was so interesting that people were getting frustrated that he couldn't really check them in. <laughs> but he made a very interesting comparison. He said working as a night manager in a hotel is a lot like working in the theater because there's an upfront and there's a backstage. And he said it's totally chaos backstage, but you're trying to pull off this upfront that looks completely pulled together. Mm-hmm. They did some filming also at the Matterhorn. It makes me want to go there. Have you ever been there? I have been to the Matterhorn, but I was not chasing an international arms yeah, dealer. I would like to go. <laughs> right, exactly. Isn't it interesting that, of course, whenever something comes out of Britain, it's always six episodes, and whenever it comes out of the United States, it's always 22, and it just is yet another example of the excess we have in our country. Like, why can they do so much better in six episodes, and would our our network TV be better if maybe they didn't do 22 episodes? I just wanted to put that out there as a moment. Or you could go with the yardstick the other way and say it's three times longer than your average Bond film. And yet they maintain the gripping suspense. You know, this was the first time I've ever seen Hugh Laurie in a role where he got to use his real accent. Oh, that well, that's nice. And a fine accent it is. I just want to include a clip here of him on the Graham Norton show with Reese Witherspoon. In America, are they aware that you're a British actor? Uh, y- yes. They are. They are. I'm not going to lie. I think my mother still really thinks that you're an American. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Wow. I think she actually thinks you're a real doctor, too. And I love that show, by the way. If you haven't watched it, you should go to YouTube. It's fabulous. All right, we have to move on now. We are running out of time, and we have to go into confirmation hearings. We're very busy this week. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. My name is Anita F. Hill. A former employee told the FBI that I was inappropriate with her. Why is she saying this? I don't know. This woman had years to speak up. He is not, not the victim. It. It's a high-tech lynching. What if she's lying? I believe you. 
had to tell the truth. I was in New York City, and I just started an organization called the Women's Resource Center in New York, which was all now, about this empowering. this was back in 1991. It was, yeah. And so I was lucky enough, right after the hearings, Anita Hill came up and she spoke for the first time. She spoke at, at Hunter College, and they interviewed her there. And I happened to be there, and I also had lunch with her uh, after the panel, she was so stoic through it all. And whether, you know, I, I, I can't speak, you know, nobody's proven one way or another, although I totally believed her from day one. But, but I will say that what was something that we need to start with is after the hearings, the next year, more women were voted into the Senate and Congress than ever before. Which was a good thing, because at uh, the time, there were only two women in the Senate. Okay, but but, I mean, it was a huge, huge, uh, you know, tons of money raised. And universities made changes around uh, sexual harassment and companies, huge changes, 30% more increased reportings of, um, of... harassment in the workplace the next year. All of these amazingly strong, fabulous changes took place, except for in the Senate and in Congress and in the the government things, nothing changed. It's not that different today, saith many women who are still in there. So it's so funny that everybody, you know, everybody sort of got the message except for those guys down there in Washington. To any victim of sexual harassment, the message is nobody's gonna take you seriously, not even the United States Senate. You are not drawing a conclusion that Judge Thomas sexually harassed you. Yes, I am drawing that conclusion. That well, is then my... I don't understand. Well, let me try to explain again. And, uh, and it's sort of sad when I think about where we are in Washington today and the complaints and the you know, sexual issues around some of the guys in there, both sides of the aisle. And here we are 20 years later, and uh, and what's changed? Back when I was in law school, Professor Hill came to speak. The issue became my character. Bomb threats to my house, sexual violence. Why would someone make up this story? This wasn't about the truth. They were humiliating her. There were two other speakers who came when I was in law school. They were the two reporters, Jill Abramson from the Wall Street Journal, who later became the executive editor of the New York Times, and Jane Mayer from the New Yorker. They wrote the book Strange Justice, which was nominated for the National Book Award. And it was so interesting because they said when they started writing the book, they went into it with an objective mind. And the more they investigated, they were stunned at how many people they found who had very similar things to say to what Anita Hill had testified Well, to. by the way, four people who had the same experience with him were sitting in Washington waiting to testify, and Biden didn't put him on. I mean, there's four more standing there waiting to speak that didn't. It, amazing. And, you know, I didn't remember that Joe Biden was the one who presided over the hearings. But oh, my so God. Many, <laughs> with the toothache, right. A lot of people make it reductive where they say it's all a he said, she said. And Jill Abramson, she said that's always irritated her. The people who say we'll never know, we'll never really know what happened. She said as a journalist, if you dig diligently, you should be able to weigh the evidence. And that, of course, is what jurors do. You assess a witness's credibility. You consider all the evidence. But as you say, a lot of the corroborating witnesses were not called. Much of the evidence was excluded. The book, Strange Justice, was one of the books that they used when writing the screenplay to confirmation. Okay, so what did you think? of the of the show and how they how they approached it and did you think 
Uh, Scandal's performance by Kerry Washington was wonderful. My friend's jobs are being threatened. My reputation is ruined. I'll tell you who I thought was the best actor. It wasn't Kerry Washington, was it? It was Greg Kinnear as Joe Biden. I thought, oh, I he, thought was he was great. You, did you, didn't you think he was good? Yeah, I thought good. he was. I mean, down to the voice and the mannerisms. Mm -hmm. Professor Hill, Judge Thomas, please stand to be sworn in. Now, I haven't seen any interviews with Biden, and I looked before we did our podcast. He's going to have to say something, and thank goodness he's not running for president. If Kerry were, uh, were advising him from scandal, was she, if this were a scandal episode, she'd tell him to come right out and say, I messed this up. That was a long time ago, and a lot has changed since then, but he was wrong, and he needs to say so. The, by the way, so was Kennedy, and then there, of course, was Chappaquiddick, was not that you know, that far long. I mean, he, he didn't feel comfortable speaking on the issue. I mean, all the Democrats on that, on that committee did not step forward. It wasn't just Biden. Well, watching at the time and watching this version and confirmation, seeing who was on that Judiciary Committee, the 14 white men, <laughs> to me, it was like watching rogue nations on the UN Security Council voting against peacekeeping resolutions. <laughs> Not only did Kennedy have the stain of Chappaquiddick on his soul, but back in 1991, that was when the rape trial was still pending. Um, do you remember that? Scandal yeah, but that's not him. The alleged know. rape. Yeah. But he was at home and it happened on his estate. Okay, well, um, we can look on the other side of that committee, too, and some of the things that were said from the other side of that aisle, and I think they're equally... I think they're they're heinous, and I think that they were designed to take her credibility away, and and their staffs let that go on. I mean, the whole time was very, very, very... It was, an, it was an evil moment. I cannot think of another hearing where the witness was treated in such an adversarial manner. Well, I think you can go back to the McCarthy hearings. But the problem was the way she was treated, how nobody took to the other side of it, and um, except for women on the streets. And I, we went to Washington and marched. It was a huge march in Washington. I took my little, poor little five-year-old daughter. She had no idea what she was doing there, but she had a great time. Uh, and... It was a moment in time when we all woke up and we recognized that we had 51% of the American population were women and that we really never had exercised our not only our right to vote, but our demand that we have better representation. I have never seen women band together since I've been a grown-up as they did around Anita Hill. Did you like the way they laid out the plot and everything? They had my attention from the beginning. Yeah, so I the beginning so. reminded me of Homeland, where you have clips of the U.S. presidents, you have clips from actual yeah. news coverage. I trust that the Senate will confirm this able man uh, promptly. It was packed with amazing actors. Grace Gummer, Merrill's daughter, plays the aide to Ted Kennedy. Jennifer Hudson was one of the corroborating witnesses who wasn't allowed to testify. Treat Williams as Senator Ted Kennedy. The English actress Alison Wright, who played Clarence Thomas's wife, Virginia Thomas, I thought she was great in a role that I would imagine was very well, difficult. And what's so funny about that is she's on the Americans playing the same clueless wife. <laughs> you know, playing it's like Martha Hansen. I know. And I'm like, oh, honey, you need to really rise above having no brainers. You know, you should be looking at this guy saying, I believe her and get out of my house. You know, <laughs> did you recognize Eric Stone Street from Modern Family? 
he played Ken Duberstein. Oh, no, I didn't. I didn't recognize yep. him. Um, huh. Dylan Baker, who is Colin Sweeney on The Good Wife, he plays Orrin Hatch. And this one shocked me. The one who played Arlen Specter is the actor Malcolm Getz. He was the neurotic colorist of her cartoons on Caroline in the City. <laughs> There you go. Another actor I wanted to give a shout out to was Zoe Lister-Jones, who played Biden's legislative aide. I thought she was very good. Bill Irwin, who played Senator Jack Danforth, he has been inducted into the International Clown Hall of Fame and yet is a tremendous dramatic actor. It's chock full of really, really good actors. And it comes together as an ensemble, I think, really well. I do. seeing the real news coverage spliced in with people like Peter Jennings and Andrea Mitchell. The real-life newscasters were great at playing themselves. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. The sexual harassment storm around Clarence Thomas is intensifying. I mean, they put together an, a, a really, really strong cast, and they put together a great writer because there's way too much information to make this entertaining through the whole thing, and a lot of it's very dry. You know who wrote the screenplay? Who? Susanna Grant, who was nominated for an Oscar for writing Aaron Brockovich. I think she did a better job on this, actually. She said she's always drawn to people whose voices aren't heard widely enough, and a lot of them happen to be women. Huh. She used the book Strange Justice, She also was inspired. She saw the documentary Anita, which was done by the Oscar-winning documentarian Frida Mock. She saw that out at Sundance, and that inspired her to write the screenplay. It would have been more comfortable to remain silent. But when I was asked by a representative of this committee to report my experience, I felt that I had to tell the truth. I could not keep silent. I think that when you look at Anita now, like I've seen her on the red carpet and she's done a couple of interviews and she's got a much stronger voice now, 20 years later, which I, you know, first of all, she was constantly never, she was never in front of what was going to happen. She was constantly responding to these last minute tasks that she was asked to perform, including, okay, the Senate's ready to hear from you now, even though we said it would be tomorrow. You know, the whole thing was And nuts. even though they said she'd never have to testify I know. and they would keep crazy, her crazy, crazy, private. right? Yes. Uh-huh. I don't know how they got away with it. But anyway, if you see her now, I think... You know, she's definitely got her head together in terms of what went wrong. And But, you know, when they're asking her about things that are happening now, she sort of leaves it alone. She, I think she's uh, she's really very, very good, I think, at it. So You know, after watching Confirmation, I ran to Hulu to watch the documentary, Anita, just to see some more footage about the hearings. And one of the lines that really moved me is they showed the corroborating witnesses who were allowed to testify on Anita Hill's behalf. And there was one man, you know, I think all four of them went on to become judges and law professors. And he said, even a couple weeks before the hearing, if you had told him that he would be testifying on Professor Hill's behalf, he would have thought it would have been in the capacity as a nominee herself for a judicial appointment. You know, and he said, I can assure you that after today, I doubt she'll ever be nominated. The price she paid was enormous. She didn't get defensive no matter how much they tried to make her. I mean, she, at the time, I thought, how could anybody believe him over her? I mean, it just was shocking to me that half the country, and you could see it on the newsreels at night, everybody was like, no, you know, she's the, and I thought, I don't know where your people are coming from. Like, seriously. At the same time, um, 20 years later, if we look back on the fact that what started, by the way, 
this sort of overtook everything, but there were a lot of groups that came forward that said, this man is not qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. And what's turned out to be true, and the movie never addresses at all, and maybe that's a good thing, is that if you look at at, uh, at his participation on the court since he came on it, it's been lackluster at best, and actually, you know, ridiculous at worst. I mean, he's spoken twice in, in how many years? I, you know, it's just... It doesn't make any sense. Well, the great irony, of course, is that she worked for him when he was the chairman of the EEOC, which is the agency responsible for sexual harassment claims. It's going to be interesting to see how active he is on the bench now that um, Justice Scalia was found dead, because he did always vote the way that Scalia voted. But the truth is, he probably shouldn't have been on there anyway, let alone the fact that he's, you know, got issues. Um, so I think that I think that's a very... Uh, a very important point when you look back historically that even if this hadn't happened, he shouldn't have been on the court anyway. The actor who portrayed him, Wendell Pierce. Good job. I got to tell you, I'm still recovering from his role in Waiting to Exhale. I didn't know he was in there. I didn't. Why did you watch that movie? I can't oh, I read the book. I saw it. the movie. I treated her the same way I treat other people. It's nonsense. Maybe someone is putting her up to this. Buckle up your guts, pal. It opened up a dialogue for everyone about how you treat people in the workplace who work for you and who you work for. And I, it, was, it was really, it was a moment in time. It was a very, very big deal. Hollister, when I went and saw the documentary, Anita, the filmmaker, she realized that Anita Hill still has the blue dress that she testified in. She sent it off to the dry cleaners yeah, so after Monica, the hearings Monica were Lewinsky over. Monica kept the dress, too. How did and that? she kept it in her closet. Right. But what's interesting about it is Anita Hill says in the documentary that she heard that in Ghana, women were requesting replicas of that dress. So there was a tailor making versions of it. So uh-huh. she said it became a fashion and a political statement. Well, I hope that dress ends up in the Smithsonian. That's where it belongs. It does. It was a moment in time. It was a pivotal moment in our history. Speaking of Kerry Washington, the character that Kerry Washington plays on Scandal, Olivia Pope, she supposedly was inspired by a real-life person. Well, not supposedly. They've, they've acknowledged it. And actually, Oprah did an amazing interview with Kerry Washington, Shonda Rhimes, and the fixer. And that fixer is Judy Smith. It is, And yeah. she is portrayed in confirmation because at the time, she was the deputy White House press secretary. You know who she worked with, speaking of dresses... No. Monica Lewinsky. Really? You can see pictures of her holding Monica's hand, leading her there, here, there, hither, to, and yon. She did, considering what she was up against, I think the comeback was pretty good. Thank God for the dress is all I can say. Okay, this is my favorite line from Confirmation. It's when there's one of the female aides in the White House says to another woman, do you think she should be more emotional? And the other one responds, if she were, would be saying she should be less emotional. Yeah, well, that's not my favorite line. That's that's the way of the world, you know? You know, I'm going to include some links on our website. Did you know that Anita Hill's opening statement to the Senate Judiciary Committee is ranked 69th on the top 100 speeches on AmericanRhetoric.com? The first two being Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, and the second being JFK's inaugural address. The fact that that's in there is pretty cool. Screenthoughts.net. Yay. And Hollister, I know that you said that grace was one of your New Year's resolutions. Yes, the word grace. Well, hopefully the action. I hope to be filled with grace more, but um, but we'll stick with the word for now. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I wanted to share this quote with you by Professor Anita Hill from the documentary Anita. She said, I found my voice in 1991, and having found it, I won't lose it again. I'm here today because so many people before me struggled for my dignity, for my freedom, and for justice. And for that, I try to live each day with a heart full of grace. So when I say raise your voice, I mean raise your voice wherever you find it. And I think we end there. I think that is an amazing quote uh, that Anita brought to all of us. So see the movie if you can. It's on HBO. And the tagline for confirmation is it only takes one voice to change history. And by the way, that is a Barry Manilow song, you know. One voice, it takes one voice. And if you're ever asked to testify before the Senate, Hollister, I I really hope you do some of it in song. Okay, well, you you know they're dying to hear from me, I'm sure. (laughs) 